Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu, Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. We thank you for this uh, holy Shabbat, this opportunity to gather together uh, in your name and in your presence to worship you, Father. We thank you for the beauty and the sweetness of your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit in our midst. And Father, we ask that as we open up your word today, that you will speak forth. Father, use me as a vessel for you, a tool for your glory. Let nothing of me be involved except that which you've ordained specifically for this purpose on this morning. Father, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to receive from you and to be humble before you as you speak into our hearts. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says... Amen and amen. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and grab them out. Open up to Genesis chapter 18. This week we're in Parsha Vayera. As a bit of a caveat into the message today, um, I want you to understand this is now the third message in a row that I have gotten up here on Shabbat to preach and have known all week exactly where I was going with it. And anybody that knows me and how scatterbrained I am uh, realizes that's a miracle in and of itself. Um, I, I typically am all the way, I'm working on my message all the week, all week long. I'm all the way up till Friday night, sometimes Saturday morning before I have any clear idea of where it's going. Um, and so, uh, with that said, I also want to say that because I've known all week what the Lord put on my heart to share with you, I've also been trying to come up with other messages all week, uh, because I don't like these messages. These are the messages that kick people in the butt. So if you don't like your feelings get hurt, now's the time to roll. Uh, we'll still keep you on the log and count you as attended, and you won't get a phone call tomorrow asking where you were. Um, but if you don't like your faith being pushed, if you don't like getting hit in the gut, if you don't like your toes stomped on, if you need to be coddled and hold a pacifier, now's the time to roll. Otherwise, buckle up, hold on, because the ride's going to get bumpy. And I'm warning you in advance, I tried getting out of this one, and I never win when I argue with God. So with that said, we are now going to move right into it, and everybody's going, oh, Lord. Um, if you have your scriptures, like I said, go and open up to Genesis chapter 18. Um, typically, as we look at this, one of the things I like to talk about as we're dealing with uh, this particular area of scripture is, is the fact that in Judaism, we make it a point regularly to say, the Lord our God, the Lord of Abraham, the Lord of Isaac, the Lord of Jacob, right? And, and quite often, we, we do it within Judaism as kind of haphazard or, or rote practice. It's not something that, that just flows, it's something that flows naturally, it's not something you have to think about. And, and far too often, we don't really get down to the nitty-gritty of when did he become the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And, uh, and most of the time, I like to kind of hone in on those ideas and, and roll through that. But um, I want to really deal with Abraham this morning, uh, and in particular with the relationship of Abraham and Adonai. Um, Abraham is one of my favorite characters because if you've ever read the Bible, you'll know that Abraham is like the human's human, right? Um, I mean... For a guy that was considered righteous, and as we look through Scripture over and over again, we see reference to Abraham being righteous and a man after God's own heart like David and that kind of a concept over and over and over again. I mean, we have an entire chapter in Hebrews dedicated to men of righteousness, and Abraham's like a third of it. Um, and so it's really interesting when we look at this. But then I look at Abraham and realize he's really just one of the guys. Like, Abraham messes things up all the time, over and over and over and over again. And yet he still seems to have this really neat relationship with God. And he's still counted as righteous. And he still has opportunity to return and repent. And, and I don't know about you, but for me, that's really encouraging because I know me. 
Um, and, and I don't know that Abraham would match up to me sometimes. And so the, the fact that even when we jack things up, that, that God is there waiting and can use us like he's used Abraham, um, can use us to, to start something phenomenal. So if you have Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, if you have your scripture, it says, Then Adonai appeared to him at Mamre's large trees, while he was sitting at the, in the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes to see, suddenly three men were standing right by him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed down to the ground. Then he said, my Lord, if, I, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought so you can, wa- so you can wash your feet and make yourselves comfortable under the tree. And let me bring a bit of bread so that you can refresh yourselves. Then you can pass on since you have passed by your servant. They said, do just as you have said. Now, I want to set this up for you. As you're reading this in English, in uh, this first part of chapter 8, as you're reading this in English, it could be three arbitrary dudes, right? Um, I mean, it just says three men appeared to him, and he got all excited. Maybe he's excited because he's got visitors. Maybe he's a really personable person. Uh, maybe he's an extrovert, and like people being around him is like the, the thing for him, right? He's got to run out, and, and he's got to get involved. Um, but what we don't actually see in these first couple of verses is the realization that when Abraham says, my Lord, let me go, He's not saying my Lord just in the mere sense of a title or, or an honor or adding value to who the character is. He recognizes that this is God. As a matter of fact, as we move through the rest of chapter 18 and we see that Abraham and one of the three men are having this conversation back and forth. And the Hebrew, when it talks about the man that he is speaking of, the Hebrew word is Yerevave. It's not just there was an angel. It's literally God himself is standing before Abraham, chatting with Abraham. How about you? If that happened to me, if I'm standing literally right before me, the very visible image of the invisible God is standing before me, I'm going to get a little more quaky than let me go grab you some water to wash your feet and food to eat. Like I'm, that's pretty impressive. That's like, you know, forget celebrity stuff. That's like you've got God standing right in front of you. And Abraham's not phased by it. Not phased at all. As a matter of fact, he wanted to be a blessing, and so he goes, let me get you some water, let me get you a little bread to eat, uh, bare minimum, let get your feet clean, get some food in your stomach, uh, it's kind of a Jewish response, let me go get you some food, you're, 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 you're not big enough yet, let's get you more food, you've got to be famished, I just ate five minutes, you've still got to be famished. So Abraham runs, and he doesn't just get water, notice the, the three men say, go and do exactly as you've said, right? Abraham said, I'll bring you some water for your feet and some bread, he says, do exactly as you've said. Abraham goes and he runs to, to his wife and he says, all right, get all of this stuff together. And he runs to the herd and he says, all right, slaughter an ox and we're going to make a feast out of this. And he brings his massive feast before them uh, and he sits down with them and he brings them above and beyond what they said. Now, the reality is this is God before him. So even when he said, let me bring you some water to wash your feet and some bread to eat, God knew what was going to happen. I don't think God was surprised when Abraham brought this whole feast before him. I'm also curious about the time frame. Because uh, I've, I've cooked meat before. Um, I, I can't say I've slaughtered an entire animal to eat and then broken that meat down to be able to. But I'm assuming it takes a little longer than cooking it if you're adding slaughtering it into the mix, uh, much less kneading dough and, and baking it. And, um, so my guess is this wasn't like a short time frame thing. Like God sat there and waited for Abraham to do all this stuff. If God seriously didn't know that he was going to do all that, I mean, if it's me and somebody asks me to come talk to them for a minute and that minute becomes eight hours and I've got other stuff to do, um, I'm going to grow impatient rather quickly just because that's me. 
But God sits there and he waits. He patiently waits. And he knew in advance what Abraham was going to do. And more importantly, when God appeared to Abraham, Abraham wasn't thrown off. Abraham was okay with it. Notice it's much like when Abraham was called out. And God said, get up and go. Abraham went, all right, cool. And he left, right? There was this natural instinct within Abraham to listen to God. He didn't always listen to the natural instinct, but the, the instinct was there. And so he, he meets with God and hears this whole interaction with him. And then as it goes on, he tells him, uh, okay, he comes back to the food. He says, okay, now I want you to understand something. In a year's time, I'm going to come back to you at the same exact time a year from now. And when I do, your wife is going to be pregnant. Your wife, who is already old, who by many regards in society is probably one foot in the grave as it is, but she's going to be pregnant. You're going to have this long lost child that I promise to you that you've been waiting for, uh, not patiently, but you've been waiting for, you're going to have this child and his wife laughs, right? Sarah laughs in the, the tent. Uh, gets a big, big, big joke out of it. And then God goes, Sarah, why are you laughing? I didn't laugh. I don't know what you're talking about. What? <laughs> it's God you're talking to here. He's not a, a, a fool, but he has this whole conversation and, and, and they find out that they're going to have a kid in a year and everything goes on there. And then all of a sudden, the next thing that we see in verse 16 says, the men, then the men got up from there and looked down over Sodom. Abraham was walking with them to send them off when Adonai said, and again, here, if you have a TLV and other translations, they didn't quite show the same reverence in this. But if you have the TLV, the Tree of Life version, you're going to notice that Adonai is written in all caps. The A is larger than the rest of the letters. Anytime you see Adonai written like that in the Tree of Life version, that means that in the Hebrew, the word was Yudhevave. If you see Adonai written where only the A is capitalized and everything else is lowercase, that means the word Adonai was actually used in Hebrew. All right. So here we see right out the gate when Adonai said, should I keep secrets from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham will most certainly become a great and mighty nation and in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have made myself known to him so that he will command his sons and his household after him to keep the way of Adonai by doing righteousness and justice so that Adonai may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Then Adonai said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great indeed, and their sin is very grievous indeed. I want to go down now and see if they, if they deserve destruction, as its outcry has come to me. And if not, I will know. Verse 22, then the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham was still standing before Adonai. So now the other two men have gone off. They've started to make their way towards Sodom. Then uh, it says, then, but Abraham was still standing before Adonai. Abraham drew near and said, notice, the, the language, the way it's worded here, we're getting to something, the way it's learned. Abraham drew near to him. Abraham was already standing there, right? They were already kind of talking. There was already this closeness, but he drew closer to him. He drew closer to him. Abraham drew near and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you really sweep away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to cause the righteous to die with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked share the same fate. Far be it from you. Shall the judge of the whole world not exercise justice? Then Adonai said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous people within the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham starts to negotiate. Well, 45, well, 40, well, 30, well, 20. What if there's only 10 men? And God says, look, if there's as few as that, I will spare the city. 
Notice he didn't quite make it to, to one man because Lot was that one man that, would have, that he was saved, right? Um, not that Lot was necessarily righteous, but he was that one man that, that was there. And so he gets down and he's bartering back and forth. But the thing I want you to, to look at in this text, the thing, that I think, the thing that I think means the most right now, that really stands out to me, considering where as a congregation we are, as a country we are, where the world is today, um, and, and, and ultimately where the body of Messiah is, is that one of the things that was unique about Abraham was the intimacy he had with the Lord. It was the intimacy that he had. When, when the voice of the Lord spoke out and said, get up and go, Abraham left. The text says it was a God that his family did not know, and he was calling to a place that he did not know. And he got up and he left. And then from then on, he walked in this, this beautiful intimacy with the Lord. So much so that he, he felt no surprise. There was, his relationship was so close to the Lord that there was no shock at all when the Lord stood before him. When God himself stood right before him. There was no surprise. There was no shock. There was nothing that, that threw him for a loop. Kind of like Adam and Eve when, when the Lord showed up in the middle of the garden, in the middle of the day to walk with them. They weren't surprised. They were hiding because they expected it. They threw on clothes because they expected it. Here, Abraham had this deep intimacy with the Lord. And I believe in this particular passage, that intimacy took another depth. It went a little bit deeper in relationship. Because in this particular account, we see the heart of Moses come out of Abraham. We see the heart of Yeshua come out of Abraham. We see the heart of an interceder. When Abraham was told by God that he was going to destroy Sodom, Abraham's instinct was to cry out for even the righteous. Maybe there's just a few righteous, Lord. Could you really wipe out the whole place, including the righteous? If there's just a few righteous, isn't it just to let the whole place stay alive so that they can impact and affect those lives? But I want you to understand something. I think one of the problems with the body of Messiah today is we don't have that intimacy with the Lord. I think in, in many regards, on a case-by-case -case basis, many of us in the body of Messiah don't have any intimacy with the Lord. The average believer, if they're lucky, probably opens their Bible once a week. And that's in services, when the pastor or the rabbi gets up to speak. The average believer may spend a couple of moments a day in prayer if somebody cut them off in traffic. The average believer may fall on their face before the Lord if their bank account's low and the power bills do. The average believer may inter intercede on the behalf of someone else if they've already died. And we realize they may have died without faith. The average believer does not have an intimacy with the Lord like that of Abraham. It's an intimacy that requires relationship, that re requires communion. And I don't mean communion in the sense of taking bread and wine like we see in churches today. I mean literally communing with God, communicating with Him, setting time aside specifically to spend with Him. If I didn't set time aside in my day and my week to spend time with my wife, I would never hear the end of it. And it's not to say I'm perfect at it, but I would never hear the end of it. 
And God is so much more important than my wife. If I didn't set time aside for my children, they would suffer, our relationship would suffer. And God is so much more important than my children. If I didn't set time aside for each and every one of you and for our congregation every week, the relationship would suffer, the ministry would suffer, and God is so much more important than that. But on the average, we do not, as believers and followers in Yeshua, we do not spend time in intimate relationship with the Lord. How many in this room spend, and, and if you're afraid to raise your hand or ashamed, feel free not to. How many in this room spend more than 10 minutes a day in intentional prayer? How many in this room spend an hour? Two hours? Three hours? How many in this room watch more than an hour of TV a day? How many listen to the radio or music more than an hour a day? How many eat three meals a day, two meals a day? I eat more than that, so my hand's down. <laughs> Clearly. We find a way to make all these other things fit in our lives. But we don't find time for God. Yet we want people to see God in us. But we don't build that intimacy with him so that he's actually showing. We don't spend time on our faces. We don't spend time with our mouths shut and our hearts open. The Western believer's mindset of prayer is let's tell God what we want and or need. Not let's sit back, shut up, and listen to what God wants and or needs. As I read through this and I look at the Parsha this week, I see that intimacy that Abraham had with the Lord. I see that when God stood before him, there was no shock. How many of us in this room, if God stood right before us right now, literally in physical form before us, how many of us would actually recognize him? How many of us would know his voice if he, if he just flat out in an audible sense right now spoke to this entire room? How many of us would recognize his voice? It's a wake-up call. Because this is the body of Messiah today. And if we want to complain about the lack of impact that we have on the world around us, we can only blame ourselves. Because if we don't value our intimacy with the Lord enough to spend time with Him, to actually develop relationship with Him, that that light shines, nobody out there is going to care when we want them to see Him. Nobody out there is going to care when we want them to hear about Him. Because they see that we don't spend the time invested in relationship with him. Acts 2, at the end of Acts 2, <clears throat> verse 42, says this was after the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh. It says they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the emissaries and to fellowship, breaking bread, and to prayers. Fear lay upon every soul and many wonders and signs were happening through the emissaries. Numerous times throughout 
the Baruch HaRashah, the New Covenant writings, we read of something similar, that they were gathering together in prayer, or their strong encouragement and enticement for prayer. Over and over again, we see this concept come up. I want you to understand, this is something, like Elizabeth said in the announcements when we were talking about our new, and, and I want you, I, I'm wording it like this. This isn't a prayer meeting. It's not a prayer service. This is a prayer directive. Our congregation, and ultimately the body of Messiah, is supposed to be what the Kotel, the Western Wall is called today, what the temple was called, what the tabernacle was called, which is a house of prayer for all nations. That's where we're supposed to be. We're not a house of worship. And the fact that we call ourselves a house of worship or the outside world calls us a house of worship means we're not doing something right. Worship is what we do. It's a part of what we do. We're not a house of the word of God. It's a part of what we do. It's an important part of what we do. But we're a house of prayer because prayer is the beginning of that intimacy and that communion with the Lord. One of the things that I felt the Lord put on on my heart, and, and I've talked with Danielle and a few others in the congregation about this, one of the things that I feel the Lord has put on my heart about our congregation is that we've seen some really awesome things happen here, and I'm not sure I'm going to make it through this statement, but we've seen some really awesome things happen here. We've seen the power of God. We've experienced the power of God. And I believe there is so much more in store for our congregation, more than any of us in this room could ever expect or understand or desire. But I believe God is saying, I believe this is a, an influential moment in our congregation's future. I believe God is saying if we as a community and as individuals are not going to be good stewards with what he has already given us, with the little, why should he give us any more? Why should there be more poured out? Poured out? Why should we experience more of the power of God? Why should we be given the opportunity for signs and wonders to flow through us if we aren't willing to do the day-to-day? -day? A business cannot continue to operate if the day-to-day -day functions do not occur. In the same sense, our faith cannot continue to operate if the day-to-day -day functions do not occur. We had a time on Monday nights a couple of years ago for months on end where we had a, a very deep time of prayer, much like what we're wanting this to be. Every Monday, every week, for months we had this. And early on, we had large groups that were going, 10, 15 people, still not as many as were actually coming to synagogue, but 10 or 15 people were there. A few weeks, a month into it, two months into it, five or six people. Another month or two, one or, one or two people. Before long, it was me. And although I am more than happy to spend time as much as I can and I regularly do in prayer for each and every one of you and for our congregation, if as a community we cannot be committed to come together where two or three are gathered together, there the Lord also is. If we cannot be committed to come together faithfully, to seek the Lord, to build intimacy with the Lord together, and to seek his desire for our community and for our individuals, I will not steal time away from my family and rob my family of the relationship with them. And so we ended up canceling it. We just stopped because for weeks it was just me. And then it got to a point where it was discouraging to me to show up because nobody else was there and nobody else bought into it. And so we canceled and we haven't done it in probably two, well, we've been here for a little over two years, so we haven't done it in two and a half, three years now. 
But we're getting to a place now, and I believe that the Lord is, 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 waking, is waking my heart up to it, and I hope that it's something that's resonating in yours as well. We're getting to a point, and you've heard me say for weeks on end now, that we're in a day and age where just preaching the gospel doesn't do anything anymore. And it's not because the gospel doesn't have power. It's not because the gospel can't transform and change people's lives, but it's because people hear one thing out of our mouth and they see something different. The end of Acts 2, it says there were hundreds being added daily that were being saved, and it was because of the power of God. If you look at that part we just read from Acts 2, at the very end, Acts 2.42, and you compare it to, to the middle of Acts 1, really wasn't much of a difference between what the believers were doing. The difference was the power of God. But the power of God in their midst was predicated by the fact that they faithfully gathered, they faithfully were in the Word, they faithfully were in prayer, they were faithfully in teaching. And then they continued to do the same thing afterwards. And many signs and wonders occurred and hundreds and thousands were added that were being saved. We live in an Acts 2 day. We live in a day where people will not come to faith in the Lord if we merely preach. If you don't believe me, go watch in Pensacola, where down by the, the Pensacola Christian University or whatever it is, where they stand out at the corners and preach and scream at cars as they drive by waving a Bible in the air. It doesn't affect anything. People need to see God in us. But how are they going to see God in us if we don't take the time to let them in? If we don't take the time to cultivate that relationship. So I am calling, and I believe this is a calling from the Lord for our congregation, I am calling for our community to dedicate their lives to building the intimacy with the Lord. And some of our lives rebuilding it, and some of us for the first time ever thinking it might even be necessary but building intimacy with the Lord. I'm calling us as a whole to not just come together once a week in prayer. And I beg of you, come on Wednesday nights. This is for the health and the direction of the congregation. This is for what God's got in store for us. This is pre preparation. And, and, and what I believe is on my heart, and we'll see how long it takes to get there, what's on my heart is ultimately to have something like that going on seven days a week. Some of it in the evenings, some of it in the morning, some in the afternoon, so that nobody has an excuse not to be here. At some point, at least once a week, somebody will be able to find a way to get here in community and gather corporately in prayer. Where two or three there are there, there I am also. I'm calling for corporate prayer. I'm calling for us as individuals to rededicate our lives to intimacy with the Lord. Daily. This isn't just come together on Saturdays and do some prayer and come together on Wednesdays and do some prayer because that's not going to amount to anything if the regular isn't occurring in our own personal lives. If we don't have intimacy personally, we can't develop and cultivate intimacy corporately either. I'm calling for us to return to the Word on a daily basis. In essence, what I'm calling for is for us to be disciples of the Lord. I think the problem with the body of Messiah today is that we stopped being disciples. We stopped following the image and the likeness of our Messiah. Even down to the night before he died, he was on his face before the Lord. When he stood on the cross, the last thing he said when he was hung on the cross was in intercession, one of the last things, was in intercession for those that put him up there. How many in this room has family members and friends that we want to see come to know the Lord? 
How many of us realize it's not going to happen if they don't see him in us? First Thessalonians verse, chapter 5, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who work hard among you and are over you in the Lord and correct, uh, and correct you, and to esteem them beyond all measure in love because of their work. Keep shalom, peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers and sisters, correct the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. None of that is possible without intimacy with the Lord. Unless we have truly experienced those exact things from the Lord, we cannot share them with others. See that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. How did we as believers allow ourselves to get away from that? Pray constantly and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Messiah Yeshua. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. In other words, intimacy with the Lord. For this is God's will for you in Messiah Yeshua. Intimacy with the Lord is what we were created for. It's what we walked away from. It's what we denied when we accepted sin into our lives. And it's what Messiah was put on the cross for to restore us to. In spite of everything. Do not quench, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic messages, but test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Keep away from every kind of evil. Now may the God of Shalom himself make you completely holy. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept complete, blameless at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Faithful is the one who calls you, and he will make it happen. Accepting the salvation and the blood atonement of Messiah is bare minimum. It's bare minimum. There is so much more to a faithful, righteous walk with the Lord than fire insurance. If our faith in the Lord, if our acceptance of Messiah is merely to keep us out of hell, then it's fire insurance. But if our faith in Messiah and our walk with the Lord is so that we can become more like Yeshua, so that we can affect the world around us, so that we can know the presence of the living God in our midst, then intimacy is required. This is a time, you could take it or leave it, it's between you and God. This is a time in our congregation where I truly believe the call from the Lord Get on board, get out of the way. And I don't think it's just for our congregation, I think it's for the body of Messiah as a whole. But it starts with us. Get on board or get out of the way. We don't need anchors, we don't need things that are holding us back. God's got stuff in store and I want to chase after it. I want our congregation to do everything that God has assigned us to do. We have a menorah, public menorah lighting coming in in. December, uh, December 26th downtown at the City Hall in Daphne on the front lawn. The whole purpose to this is to be out in the community and show the light of Messiah to the community. Without intimacy in the Lord, we have no light to shine. We're just going to be a bunch of people out there lighting a candle.
God has something phenomenal in store for us, individually and corporately. The question is, are you willing to take the charge? Are we willing to get on board? Are we willing to dedicate time every day? I had a friend in New York who, and and most people thought he was crazy, and to some degree so did I, uh, because I just couldn't imagine how you can make this work in life. I had a friend in New York that said there's 24 hours a day. And, And it's funny, if you do the math, it actually works out to where this actually works out. But there's 24 hours a day. And so he said, the Lord says tithe of our resources. So God's given me 24 hours a day. First 10% of the day when he wakes up, the first 10%, the first two hours, 40 minutes of the day, he dedicates to the Lord in prayer and in study. Every single day, he wakes up early. If he's got stuff going on, uh, he wakes up earlier so that he can make sure the first two hours and 40 minutes of the day. And at first I went, well, that's just a lazy with 24 hours, two hours, that's just a lazy. And then I did the math. I went 24 times 60. And then I broke that down to 10% and it came out to exactly two hours and 40 minutes. And I went, oh, I guess it wasn't just lazy. That actually, that's actually right. And I thought, how do, you, how do you carve two hours? I mean, there's only 24 hours. Now you're stuck with 21 and a half hours left to do anything with. Not even 21 and a half hours. 21 hours and 20 minutes left to do anything with. And if you work, you're locked into 8 to 12 hours there already. You don't even have time to sleep. Where are you going to fit a meal in? Time with your family. But what's funny is, as I watched him, he did some crazy things later, went even crazier later. But as I watched him, what I noticed was he truly dedicated that time to the Lord every single day. And he got more stuff done. He was more productive in his regular life. He was more productive in ministry. He didn't run out of time. Seemed like everything panned out. And I started thinking about it and went, you know, we tithe faithfully financially. And we do so trusting that everything's going to pan out. That if, if my salary is 40000 a year and, and my budget is, is 40000 a year and I give God 4000 of that right out the top, I'm below what my budget requires. I don't know how this is and somehow it works out. I don't understand it, but somehow it does. I can tell you that we are much less productive, if nothing else spiritually. We are much less productive if we don't take that time with the Lord. And I'm not advocating that you have to set two hours and 40 minutes a day aside. But you have to set something aside. And I don't think five or 10 minutes is enough. I don't think 15 minutes is enough. We have to set time aside. We have to make God a priority. We want God to make us a priority. We have to make God a priority. We literally have the presence of God within us. So how is it that 2,000 years removed from Yeshua on the stake, we can still go... If God stood before me, or if I heard the audible voice of God speak right now, I'm not sure I would recognize it. We have the presence of God residing within us. The day and age that we're in and the direction the Lord is taking in this congregation, let's get on board and get out of the way. It's not an accusation. I don't want to lose anybody. But I can tell you this, over the years I've learned one thing in ministry. Sometimes it's addition by subtraction. God trims branches so the bush can continue to grow healthily. I don't want to see anybody leave, and I don't want you to think that if you don't show up on Wednesday nights, you can't be here on Saturdays. But I do want you to understand that the direction this congregation is going is a direction that's chasing after what God has assigned for us. And if you don't want to be a part of that, now's the time to gracefully leave. And that's not to be mean. It's not to break hearts. It's not to hurt people but we just can't afford the body of Messiah today to let 
anything get in the way of what God's got in plan for us. This is a corporate decision. And our membership class, and I'll talk about it a little bit this afternoon in our, our membership class. Our membership class, we make it a point to state, and I think this is important for people who aren't even members yet to understand this. We make it a point to say that we're not asking you to sign a contract with the, the congregation. We're asking you to become a, a covenant member. Your, your application is a covenant. You're signing a covenant with the congregation. This isn't, look, we're not holding you to a lifetime covenant. It doesn't mean you can't be moved somewhere else and go be a part of another congregation because you signed a lifelong covenant. But it's a covenant for when you're here. And you know the difference between a contract and a covenant is? I heard this this weekend at the conference and it really like, stood out to me. The difference between a contract and a covenant in basic language and, and, and man language is, uh, as I just said, we're basic. All right, backfired on me. But <clears throat> in, in man language, the, the definition of, of a contract or the, the difference between a contract and a covenant is a contract, if one of the two parties fails to uphold their end of the contract, the whole contract fails and it's voided. But we have a covenant relationships, not just with the Lord, but with each other in community. And in a covenant, if one, both parties uphold their part in spite of what the other party does or no matter what the other party does, so in a contract, one party can fail and it destroys it all and avoids it all. In a covenant, one party can fail and the other party continues on, waiting for them to get back on board. If that doesn't sound like our walk of the Lord, I don't know what else does. And that's what we call people to be a part of here as a member, is to be in covenant relationship, to be in covenant with the congregation. And part of that covenant is being faithful. So I ask of you, please prayerfully be here. Consider being here on Wednesday nights from now on, starting not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday after. We decided to start it the week after Thanksgiving because I really didn't think anybody was going to be in town this Wednesday. So, so Wednesday, uh, a week from this Wednesday, we start, and I beg of you, please. And in the meantime, between now and then, start making it, a, uh, if you don't already or if you don't do it enough, start making God a priority. Set time aside every day. If an hour is too much, if a half hour is too much for the beginning, start with something. Start with 10 minutes, work up to 20, work up to 30, work up to 40. Realize that prayer does not require us to talk. When you have a conversation with your family or your spouse or your friends, are you the only one that says anything? I mean, I talk really fast and get a lot in really quick, but I still shut up at some point for the other person to say something. Prayer does not require us to speak. It's more important to listen, especially if you're asking for an answer. If you ask for an answer, you don't give them time to answer. It kind of falls apart on you. Be in the Word. We're not going to grow unless we know the Word. We're not going to be able to teach the Word unless we know the Word. We're not going to be able to receive from the Word unless we open it up every once in a while. I'm asking you intentionally, intentionally make the Lord a priority in our lives individually and in our congregation corporately. I believe God has some phenomenal things in store for us, way more than we could have ever anticipated, <clears throat> way more than I anticipated when we started this congregation. I believe we're going to come to a point where the five acres that we own right now is going to be way too small what God's doing. That doesn't mean I think we're going to grow to a 20 or 30,000 person congregation. But there's a lot of ministry that can happen on five acres of property.
I believe that the Lord has planted us here to be a congregation that sends out people to start other congregations. And in order for us to do that, in order for us to follow that calling, we have to be dedicated in intimacy with Him. We've got to model that when these congregations start developing out of us. Our vision is one day to see a Messianic synagogue planted out of us in Fairhope and Spanish Fort and Gulf Shores and Orange Beach and anywhere that there are people with a heart for the Lord, we want to see a Messianic congregation there. And they're not going to be cookie cutters. But in order for us to get there or anywhere close to there, we have to start here. Again, if we're not stewarding, good stewards, if we're not stewarding what the Lord has already given us, and, and to be perfectly honest, and this is more of an accusation at me and at the leadership of our congregation in general than anyone else in the congregation, if we are not being good stewards now with what the Lord has already given us and blessed us with, we have no right to expect Him to give us any more. We have no right to anticipate more. But we have every right to fall on our faces and to fix it now. Make it a priority now so that in the future things are where they need to be so that He can do what He longs for through us. Amen? Avarachamim, Father of mercies. Father, we thank You that in spite of the fact that Generally speaking, especially as American believers, we are lackadaisical and lazy in our faith. And in spite of that, Father, you're still there tugging at our heart. You're still there drawing us closer and closer to you. So, Father, right now, before our community, I rededicate my own life I rededicate my own intimacy with you. Father, I stand here as an example before our congregation that you are the priority. Father, I rededicate every single day that I live from this moment forward, every breath that I take, every service that we have, every prayer time that we have, every moment of worship that we have as a community. We dedicate before you. Father, we set you as a priority. And I ask you, God, to mold us into exactly what you want us to be. Continue to develop our intimacy with you. The deepness of relationship where we know your voice and recognize it when we hear it with no questions. Intimacy where you stand before us and we recognize you as Abraham recognized you. And begin now to prepare our hearts for what you have in store for this community and for each and every one of our lives. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen.